Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, my name is Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Michael Aveso, a USD Department of Education faculty member and recent winner of his second Fulbright Award. But before we get to the interview, we wanted to take a few moments to thank everyone who tunes in to listen to Credit Hour each week. This will be our last episode before summer. We started Credit Hour about a year ago as a way to showcase our students, staff, faculty, and alumni expertise and achievements. It's been a blast. We've interviewed governors, U.S. senators, world-renowned artists and entertainers, experts in brain behavior, and health. With so many stories to share here at USD, we are excited to continue the podcast next year with topics ranging from telemedicine to South Dakota's Oral History Center. We'd also like to thank all of our guests and everyone in the USD marketing office who has supported this endeavor since its inception. Lastly, I would be remiss if I didn't thank Adam Gomez, the producer of Credit Hour, who does the vast majority of the work here putting this together each week. Adam is my podcast partner in crime and has really been the brains behind this whole operation. So to Adam, a huge thank you. We'll be back in the fall, but until then, go Yotes. Dr. Veso, how's it going this morning? Oh, very good. I'm with you. Good, good. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What uh, do you teach here at USD? Uh, at USD, I teach graduate education, mostly adult and higher education. My, my focus is on uh, social justice and cultural issues in adult education. And I also teach foundations of global lifelong learning, as well as adult learning theories. How long have you been in Vermilion? Uh, Vermilion since 2004. That's running to 15 years now. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, what what brought you here, I guess? How, how did you end up in our little corner of the world? <laughs> what a question. <laughs> Good things brought me to Vermilion to start with. Uh, I was with the K-12 system in the New York public school system then. After 9-11, I, I made up my mind I was done with college uh, work, so I don't have to travel, I don't have to publish. But then uh, at some point, I was getting fed up with the No Child Left Behind Act, I mean, the way it was being run then. So I decided, okay, it was better to go back to the college classroom. So the first uh, offer I had was USD, and I took that offer up. Uh, nobody in the East Coast expected me to stay beyond one semester in South Dakota. But here I am 15 years after. Now, what was the, I guess, biggest transition? I mean, you obviously were coming from an urban area. Was it kind of the rural nature of South Dakota? Was it the weather? I'm, I'm curious, what, what did you find to be the biggest kind of transition when you got here? You know, people don't seem to believe this, but there was nothing huge in it for me because way back uh, where I come from, I balanced the urban and rural settings, that type of life. I've also had the opportunity to travel around the world, so I've met people from diverse backgrounds. So there was no cultural shock as such. I mean, moving from New York City to Vermilion, except that uh, there's a sense of more of the human nature right here than the wild, wild stuff we have sometimes in the city. So that's that's about the difference that things are quiet. You can absolutely close your eyes and walk from point A to B in Vermilion, that type of setting. And you can trust people almost absolutely. Yeah, those ones. And actually, my first semester, so I did a presentation that I compared values I used to know in indigenous Africa with values I found here in Vermilion, which are similar. 
And so I thought those values are, those values, values are universal values. So there wasn't that much of a cultural shock. Like in New York City, for instance, we had a blizzard in 95, was it 96? And that's not different from what we see here in Memilia. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So there wasn't that much of a culture shock for me moving to Vermilion. Now, you talked about how you um, focus in on, you know, this concept of multicultural education, you know, educating in a globalized world. What does that mean to you? Um, and, and what do you try to, I guess, teach uh, our students here at USD? What that means is that in spite of uh, differences and similarities, that the, the global community is becoming increasingly a small community. The, the level of interconnectedness of the globe is so obvious that we'll be in self-denial if we do not take steps to find ways to bring, to emphasize what is common to people across the globe. And knowledge creation and utilization is one of such things. Uh, the Western way of knowing is all we, what we all got in school, whether you're in the third world or the first world. But now it's becoming increasingly obvious that we need to complement that with other ways of knowing, with other people's values and, and so on and so forth. So what I try to put across using content is to add to content the realities of our communities, our global communities, our immediate communities here in Vermilion, South Dakota, the U.S. and other. And that makes, what that does is that it makes education something that has life in it. Something, something that is usable. It takes knowledge creation and utilization out of textbooks and puts it in the human community. That's what we need in the age of globalization. Because whether we like it or not, we are going to have to coexist with values different from our values. We are going to have to, our young ones getting out of college and getting the degree, they need beyond the degree to be able to function and invest their education in the community. So those are things I bring into my content. Yeah, you talked about this notion of um, you know, knowledge creation and sort of the epistemology behind it. You know, for our audience who is maybe unfamiliar with the, that term, what does like epistemology mean, and and how do we, how does it influence the way we understand the world? Well, simply as a layperson, I'm I'm not called philosophy philosopher, but as a layperson, epistemology is way of knowing of knowledge creation, uh, what it does is that uh, <clears throat> in today's world, it's, it's good to know what you are doing. I mean, the act, act, action part of it, but action not backed up by appropriate theory or framework or knowledge. Sometimes goes weary. You have errors. So what knowledge does is that we, like a teacher in the classroom, for instance, you know the theory behind what you are doing. That gives you confidence in what you are doing, and you are sure you are doing what you are doing the right way you are supposed to do it. So that's what knowledge does. Knowledge does not reduce us. Knowledge increases our ability to perfect what we are doing. And that's why the process of lifelong learning is important in what I do. We keep learning every day because knowledge is useful. Uh, in traditional Africa, we say knowledge begins from the womb and goes on, on to the womb. Womb to tomb. It never ends. So knowledge is indispensable, especially so in today's world. We have to keep learning, and it's because good knowledge informs quality action. 
So that's what epistemology does. You know, that I think is a good transition into um, one thing that we wanted to talk to you today about, which is that you've received your second um, core Fulbright award. Um, this is obviously like a super prestigious honor. You know, for those who are unfamiliar with the Fulbright program, can you just first give us, um, you know, an explanation of what the program does and what you'll be doing, um, you know, a- after receiving this award? Well, you know the Fulbright uh, is named after Senator Fulbright, who thought then that um, the United States, being the leader of the world, needs to open up peoples of the world for inter people, intercultural uh, relationships, increase uh, uh, the the link between peoples of the world using cultural, using uh, values, and education is one of those resources we can use to do that. So, what the Fulbright does is to open up access to and there are two sides of it. People going, American going abroad, and people coming into the U.S. on the basis on the platform of the Fulbright. Uh, what it does is to use the platform for education or expertise in your area of uh, knowledge to open up America to other peoples of the world and other peoples of the world to see America in its democratic, perfect sense. Of course, you know that... Uh, America is projected to the world beyond one means. Say, for instance, our movies, our, our soft culture is sold to the world. But the Fulbright does the clean aspect, what I consider the clean aspect of it, using the platform of education. My first award, for instance, that I used in, in Botswana was a life-changing experience for me. I got to, although I would, I'm originally from Africa, I've never had the experience of the sub-Saharan, uh, southern part of Africa. So the Fulbright afforded me the opportunity to know these people, know their culture, and to get them to know me as well. And the, the relationships I established way back then since 2013 see exist now at the professional level and at the social level. That I credit the Fulbright for allowing that to happen. Uh, this new award, <laughs> I think I was just super lucky to, <laughs> to, to have a second one. This one, I'm heading to Nigeria, hopefully. And I'll be teaching four, four core classes, graduate classes at the Obafemi Awolo University in the southwest of Nigeria. But I'll also be studying a concept, an indigenous concept, Medagbi. Medagbi literally translates the good person. But it's about who is an active citizen in the community. Remember, we mentioned earlier on globalization and the need for citizens to connect, connect at the local level, at the national level, and at the global level. So uh, I'm trying to study that concept, how we can use that concept to understand and rephrase or increase the quality of global citizenship, one, and diaspora citizenship. So those are the two things I hope to do with this new award. Uh, And of course, the award itself or the during the span of the award itself, it's just one tiny part of it. What follows after is a big picture. What you do with it afterwards, the connections you make, the, the credit you give to the taxpayers who have funded that, made that possible, and the credit you give to your host, the, the commitment to the host community and the commitment to the community has, that has provided me the opportunity to be able to uh, do this research. You know, part of your research will focus on 
um, diaspora communities. Again, for those who might be unfamiliar with that term or concept, what is a diaspora community um, and, and how will your research um, kind of influence our understanding of that? People are, there, it's, there is no uh, fine line of a diaspora community, but it, it varies. Like you, for instance, if you if you are to move to an African country or European country, you'll be an American in diaspora. And so and so on and so forth. So the diaspora is creating a community of your own outside your natural community where you were born, for instance. I can be described as an African in diaspora. And in diaspora, individuals in diaspora, depending on how they see it, sometimes are confronted with two worlds. The worlds of the world where they are coming from, their original world, and the world, their new world. Uh, in order for individuals to exist and function and get to the level of self-actualization, they must be able to have a balance of both worlds, uh, especially people from third world settings or indigenous settings who come into the first world, for instance. It's a huge struggle between the cultural values they, they brought with them and the cultural values of their host countries. Even you, as an American, if you were to go to some indigenous setting, you, you have to struggle with both values. And so a study and understanding of those values or the, the process of diaspora citizenship and how one can be an effective citizen in, the, in their host country without disconnecting from their original value is very important. That's, that's part of what we are trying to find out, how we can make that uh, less of a difficult process. Well, I, I mean, you have personal experience with this, right? Living, you know, in the United States. I mean, how have you, you know, fought to maintain that, you know, identity that you have, the connections that you've had, while also, you know, embracing, you know, a new country? I mean, how, how has it played out, I guess, personally for you? Personally, I think I've been fortunate, fortunate in several senses. One, I, part of my indigenous value is that, uh, there are several things that do this, that on the highway, people don't go the same direction. People are going different directions that you must learn to embrace what is different from you. When I was living in New York City, for instance, coming to Vermilion, some good friends, they are not minority, they are Caucasians, invited me to dinner and after dinner said, listen, Mike, you are a good guy. South Dakota is not a place for you. It's totally white. <laughs> And I say, really? I say, okay, let me go try. The, the thing is that I don't prejudge people until I've met them. I, for instance, if I've not given you the opportunity to try, I wouldn't be able to determine the quality of your abilities. And uh, coming to Vermilion, after that experience, and I got to Vermilion within the first two, three hours, I went to a grocery store to pick up a couple of groceries, and I, I had a couple of plastic bags in my hand. I didn't have a vehicle within. And there was this lady in her early 40s or late 30s, Caucasian, not African-American, not minority. You know what she said? Oh, your hands are full. Would you need a ride? I was flabbergasted. Here is Vermilion. They say, oh, it's too white for me. And I got to Vermilion within the first few hours. Somebody who is not of the same racial background is offering me a right, who didn't know me from other. So the point is that values, we prejudge people without giving them the opportunity to know who they are or without introducing ourselves. To, 
the, what I emit to you is what you use to determine the type of person I am. I've been here in Vermilion 15, going to my 15 years now. So the values, the values we sometimes hide in ourselves, as well as negative values, be cloud, what we are, the goodness in other people that we are supposed to see. So I've been fortunate to come from a background where I'm allowed to use my eyes, my, the eyes of my mind, of my real eyes, to see people and allow people to introduce the same by the way they, they act towards me, the way they speak, the way they do their job. And that's all we need. What we need is to give people the opportunity to be who they want to be, and then we use what values we have to see, okay, do I have, does this person have something I can borrow, I mean, in terms of values, to enhance myself, instead of looking for the negative to destroy myself and destroy the other person. So I've been fortunate in that respect. And the other advantage I've had is the opportunity I've had to travel across the globe even before coming to the U.S. So the more you travel and the more you see peoples of the world, the more educated you become. And I, in terms of education, I'm not saying book education, education of knowledge of people from diverse grounds. So that has been an asset. I mean, one question that I have, yeah. you talk a lot about values. And especially when we talk about this, I think in terms of you know an international sense or a global sense, I think there's a focus on um, you know, how technology can connect different communities um, but I also think about it like in the flip side, right? I mean, I, I think about my own experience um, living in an urban area. I lived in Chicago. And you know, if you take the train in the morning, right, everybody's on their phone. Um, and in some sense, technology seemed, in, in, in my view, you know, I was in a city of, uh, you know, millions of people. And I don't know if I had ever felt more alone, um, you know, in, the, in that uh, environment. How do you see technology influence um, of you know the values that a community will have. How can it help a community's value system, and how maybe can you know technology hurt? Technology is, I mean, it's one of the best things that has happened to human humanity, in the sense of the the how much space it has closed. What is bad is not technology. What is bad is how we put it to use, or how we do not put it to use. Uh, Sometimes we we become selfish, and this this I mean we become selfish in such a way that we focus more on the technological toys we have and leave the human angle. But invariably, when technology fails, we revert back to the human angle. I'll give you an example. Uh, New York is like Chicago. I mean, New York City. Everybody's beautiful. If you miss. This train, it may cost you the next four or five hours, or it will cost you your job, and so on and so forth. So there's one understands that. But then the human angle comes when the unexpected happens. 9-11, for instance. After 9-11 was when I saw the best of human values in New York City. Everybody saw everybody as brother and sister. That's That's... Technology doesn't do that, but technology also enhances the ability of people to see, oh, we can be human beings. So because after the disaster, for instance, you see people hugging people, irrespective of race, gender, orientation, and all that, and we, we, we use technology to, to portray that to the rest of the world that Americans are really people who love one another. So that's what, so the, the uh, use of technology 
is what can be negative, like the atomic energy, for instance. When it was created, it wasn't created to be something negative. It was human beings that converted it into a negative use, and so on and so forth. So technologies, we cannot do without technology. Say, look at the classes we run now, internet access. Uh, online classes, for instance, has made life easy, so much so that even some of our veterans can be right there on, in, in deployment and still be doing courses on campus. That's, we credit technology for that. This interview, for instance, we credit technology for it. So we cannot discontinue technology. What we can do is that we should not uh, bury concrete human values because of our use of technology. I should not, because I have my phone in my hand, uh, ignore you when you say good morning to me. I should be able to acknowledge that. And, and we are good at that, at least this part of the country. People say hello to people. And they don't have to know you to say hello to you, in most cases. When I drive out of Vermilion through Nebraska, Nebraska on the bridge, with my dark hands, you wave to people and they wave back. Sometimes I feel bad when people wave to me and I forget to wave to them. I feel like driving back to apologize <laughs> to them. That's how nice it is here. Those are the values we need to balance technology. You know, that just... That makes me laugh because, again, I grew up, I was born and raised in South Dakota, and then I lived in Chicago for about five years. And you kind of forget a little, you know, just some of the intricacies of, um, you know, the culture that you grew up in. So when I moved back to South Dakota, that was like the biggest adjustment that I would tell everyone I was around. I was like, I forgot that people waved here, right? And it, <laughs> it, 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 but it, it was such a big, you know, like, oh my gosh, this is something people do again. And it would, and I, I remember like for the first year of being back in South Dakota, like it would always make me smile, like how much joy it brought me. Exactly. Just the the simple gesture, absolutely, right? The, absolutely, the, you know pleasantry, politeness of it. Um, you know, I, I, we're probably due to wrap up here, but one thing that you've talked about, you were in New York during 9-11, correct? Then? Correct. Tell us about that experience, man. I don't, I don't want to get too personal about it. I mean, where were you in relation to the Twin Towers? I mean, were you fairly close to... I was. I, I lived in Brooklyn, and the towers were in uh, the Brooklyn side of, uh, of uh, New York City. And I lived in the sixth, on the sixth, the sixth floor of the building then. So I was seeing the burning towers from me. In fact, I was taking something to the dry cleaner and I heard the radio say, oh, uh, some craft ran into one of the twin towers. And that same week in Johannesburg, was it in somewhere in South Africa, a tourist helicopter had crashed into a building. And I just assumed it was something that I said, why are these people this careless? I didn't know it was the world that was crumbling, literally. So by the time I got back to the apartment, I looked, yes, it was really. So I was watching it on TV, and I was watching it in real life. And the thing about 9-11 is that it was so, so all-embracing that you, everybody was involved, was hot. Either you know your, your child's uh, uh, friends in schools, mother or uncle, somebody, you, you, everybody knew somebody who was affected. So it brought everybody together. Unfortunately, it was a barbaric event, but it brought us together in such a way that you see there's more to human life than so many other things. See, so many innocent lives. And everybody knew somebody who was affected by 9-11. So that, that was, it was an unfortunate event, but the, the, the impact on you if you were in New York City at that time was huge. And after that, 
You see, education also came in as there's something we call mass literacy in religious education, came in as part of the healing process. Public libraries, we had public libraries telling people if you live in this neighborhood and something like this happened, this is what you do, this is what you go. So education became useful again as part of that. So in any process, going back to what we said earlier on, in any process, uh, the healing process, the knowledge process becomes part of it. So 9-11 for anybody who was part of New York City then left an indelible mark. I mean, it's, in fact, when I hear 9-11, even if it doesn't have to do with 9-11 of New York City, it revokes the memory of 9-11 of New York City in my brain. That's how intensive it was. You know, for a last question, you've lived such an interesting life. Um, you know, now you're here in Vermilion. Obviously, you have these amazing opportunities to go travel internationally. And as you've said it, I mean, it's it opens up a whole new world literally for you to experience and learn at this point in your life what do you know for sure nobody knows anything for sure all i know is that i'm grateful to be alive today and to be here and what i know for sure is that uh, which with our sense of modesty is one has set uh, some legacy of some sort uh, because what what is certain is what you did yesterday, you can't go back and erase that. And that's part of your legacy. And I think with uh, USC has provided me the opportunity to put some little legacy out there, like the full, second Fulbright, for instance. I have all my professional bodies and I'm bombarded with the uh, uh, compliments and congratulating messages. I think that's part of the legacy, that I'm sure of. But tomorrow is for those of us who come from a uh, Indigenous Africa, you, you also you always find God in everything. Tomorrow is in God's hands. That's how they will say it in my village. Only God knows tomorrow. But today we are thankful for the opportunities we have, and we are thankful for the little legacy we have been able to make. Well, thank you for joining us here on this podcast. Thank you for all the work you do for USD for representing us, thank you. Um, both here in the United States and abroad internationally. It means a lot to us. Thanks. Thank you. It's an honor to have those opportunities. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 